Christmas, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. We love that uh, we, we don't normally do a Christmas Day service. We normally do Christmas Eve. And as Christmas Day landed on Sunday, we decided we're just going to do a family service. And how cool that all the Durbins were up here. Reminds me of the Von Trapp family singers. <laughs> if you don't know that movie uh, reference, then go watch your movies because that's a good one. Um, no, thanks. So we loved having you all up celebrating Christmas, and I have the privilege of having somewhat of the same. Uh, if you remember, I have a picture on my uh, on my front uh, in my front entryway of me with my granddaughter standing right here. Hazel is about three years old, and while I was preaching, she got out of her seat and she came and stood next to me while I was preaching, and uh, it was like one of my, it's a very precious moment for me. I'm not going to have my new grandchildren come up and preach with me, but uh, I am going to have my, my, uh, two of my sons come up and, and, uh, and be part of the sermon. So Sam's going to come up first and uh, do the reading with scripture, and then Ben will join me later at the end of the sermon. Sam? Wow. Quite the reception. The reading this morning for scripture will be from Isaiah chapter 9. It'll be verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version Bible. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy of the har at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this Christmas season, we have had the privilege of going through the promises in Isaiah, considering our Savior, looking at what was promised 700 years before Christ came about this child. And from this, we've been able to learn some of what we can expect. What is the hope of Christmas? What is the joy in Christmas? What is the, the, the difference that Christ makes for us because he came 
and became God with us. We looked first to chapter 1 of Isaiah and saw that there was a promise of, of the removal of sin and the stain of sin. And it's an abrupt promise. It doesn't seem to fit. It's while people are failing. And in the midst of telling them of their failure and their rejection of God, God promises that there is going to be a removal of sin. At that point, he hasn't mentioned this person yet. From there, we looked at chapter 40, and Dr. Norbeck preached about power and comfort that was going to come in relation to this baby in Christmas. Power and comfort. In chapter 42, we saw that the, this one who was going to come would be a faithful servant who brings justice and healing. Justice and healing. In chapter 7, a week ago, we saw that this child now went from servant to a child. A child is going to be born of a virgin, and his name would be Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. All of these promises around this infant that would be born now 2,000 years ago was going to radically change the existence of human beings. Radically change what our life was going to be. And as we now turn to Isaiah 9, we see in Isaiah he has been talking about a child and from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9, as a sign, this child is going to come. But in the middle of it, in chapter 8, there is a darkness that's talked about. There is a depletion, a hunger, a thirst, a oppression that's talked about in chapter 8. So God makes a promise in chapter 7 of a baby that's going to come. His name will be Emmanuel. And now in chapter 9, he gives more definition to that promise. And when Isaiah's writing this, he would have thought possibly of a king that would be born very soon, like Hezekiah. But here we'll see before we're done in these seven verses that Hezekiah could not completely fulfill at all the promise that God makes. This promise is too big. We're going to have three movements. This child brings light. This child overcomes oppression. And this child brings peace. This promised child king in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. The first three verses show that this child brings light. And if you had the time to look at chapter 8, you would see that there has been a darkness that has been pervasive over the land. There has been the, the lack of hope, the loss of promise. It seems like the whole thing is coming off the rails in Israel and, and God is judging his people. And Assyria is growing in strength. And as they see Assyria's power, God makes this promise of a king who's going to come and bring light. An amazing light, a remarkable light. You look at me in verse 1 of uh, chapter 9. It says, but there will be no gloom for, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, may ha he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This promise begins with their time. 700 B.C., when Assyria is dominating Israel, and it, the first ones to go are the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, right next to the Sea of Galilee. They're coming under oppression. They're coming under failure. God is judging them. In essence, they have moved away from God's protection and provision, and God is allowing them to reap their choices. All of humanity is in this place where they have chosen to move away from God 
and his protection and provision. And ultimately, God allows them to reap the benefits. And it's described as darkness. That they are in this darkness, and he can see it coming down from the north, from Assyria. As they come down, and Nineveh, and they come down and attack Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali are taken, and the way by the sea, this, this path that goes, this, tra- this trail that was used to bring goods and, and to travel is being overtaken by evil and darkness. And he looks at it and he says, but there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. This is God speaking now. Man has made her, his choice. He has chosen to move away from God and he is now reaping the benefits of that choice. The, the costs of that choice. And God says, I'm going to do something suddenly and miraculously that is going to remove the gloom. I'm going to take away sadness. I'm going to take away the anguish. I'm going to take away the contempt. And this is going to, there, there was, if you look at chapter 8, there's a recession. People are, are covering in. People are losing ground. People are losing hope. In, in verse 2, he goes on to talk about it as a darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Ultimately, we're going to see this is Christmas Day. This is Christmas morning. By the end of the sermon, God is going to shine a light suddenly and miraculously for people that are walking in darkness. And it says, walking and dwelling in darkness. What, how are people walking and dwelling in darkness? Well, they have chosen to walk away from God and their hope, and now God doesn't leave them there, but God miraculously comes to solve the problem come to shine a light on people who are suffering. In verse 3 it says, You have multiplied the nation. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad, they will divide the spoil. We just learned about in chapter 8 this darkness that was taking land, taking their goods, taking their crops, and now there are people that are coming in from other nations that are dominating Israel and they have to pay taxes to them. They have to give up their goods. Instead of feeding their families from the crops and from the sheep, they're now giving that up to other nations that are taking it from them. This is their plight. They've become servants. They've become those who support others who are more powerful. And this miracle that God is going to work is going to multiply the nation. It's going to bring increase. It's going to bring a harvest And it's going to make it so that they are going to divide the spoil. It's as if God is going to bring back not only what they gave, but gave away, but far more. And in that, there is going to be a division of the spoils. Imagine going from being hungry and not being able to feed your family. And this is literal in their times. But there's a spiritual side that is far more that God's addressing that we see all the way back to chapter 1. And there is going to be a division of the spoil. There is going to be so much surplus that you're going to be able to give it away. This is their plight. This is what God is going to do in the face of their judgment and their distance from him. He's going to do something miraculous that brings light. 
this child that is born also overcomes oppression. Look in verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. What are the Israelites at this time experiencing? They're experiencing a yoke, something that's laid upon them so that they can work for others, a staff and a rod for discipline and for directing. And it's all in the context of an oppressor, somebody who beats down, someone who belittles, someone who diminishes. And this child is coming to break the yoke and break the staff and break the rod. And it's going to be done as on the day of Midian. What does that mean? Well, if you know the story from the Old Testament in Judges, you would know that uh, in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon is told to defeat his enemies and they go with a, a large, there's a big horde of, of people that are coming to attack Israel. And Gideon says, well, here's my soldiers. And God brings it down to 300 soldiers that go and attack this group that is far larger than them. And God miraculously defeats the enemy in a way that no human could take credit for it. There's no way Gideon could take credit for the, the, the defeat of the Midianites. So he's saying that God is going to break the yoke, the staff, and the rod as it was done in Midian. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be miraculous. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be on Christmas Day. In verse 5, it says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. The picture here is that all of those garments that were used for war, all of the tools that were used for war are not necessary anymore. This Savior who's coming, this child who's coming, is going to remove war. He's going to solve the problem that causes division among people and solve the problem that caused division between us and God. And he'll remove war. These promises are huge. Now, have there been any wars since Christmas, the first one? Anyone? Oh, I, well, he came to remove war, right? Has there been any tumult or oppression since Christmas? Yeah, so where is this promise and what is this promise? What is the child promise? What is the promise of Christmas? Well, it starts with the war between us and God because of our sin. The division between us and God. He came to solve that. And ultimately, when Christ returns, he will remove war. But I want you to know something about how God removes oppression. How do hum Let's start with how humans remove oppression. Do you know how humans remove oppression? Become a bigger oppressor. Do you know how you conquer a bully? Become a bigger bully. If you want to outdo the Germans and Hitler in World War II, how do you do it? Do you sit back and you say, please don't do that? No, oppression meets oppression, and the, the landscape of Europe was torn apart. Homes that had nothing to do with the war were obliterated. Cities and towns were damaged in the face of a war. When humans take on oppression, we bring a bigger stick. This is a promise of a child removing oppression. Why a child? 
And why a child who comes in weakness and a poor family? And why a child who doesn't come demanding its rights but comes to serve? The Christmas story is a radical change from human history that God comes to heal and to help and to restore peace, not through oppression, but through love, through grace, through humility, through peace. The promise of Christmas is Jesus. And when we look at who Jesus is, no one guessed that this was the promise of Isaiah. When Jesus came, it was actually offensive to people. You're no savior. You don't carry a stick. He loved. The promise of Christmas is Jesus. Well, I don't know how you follow that, but I'm going to do my best. Um, for this third point, before we get to what is arguably the most precious verses in Scripture, um, i got to bring us back to uh, a weird... The, Hang with me here. We're going to do something kind of weird. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I, do the, I, I wanted to tell this story just to show kind of how Todd was talking about oppression versus oppression, and that as a means to really overcome uh, evil in our, in our world. And the way that the world really treats evil is, as Todd said, um, to become the bigger, the bigger bully. Um, to get the bigger king, to get the bigger army. And so 1 Samuel 8 is actually a very pivotal uh, story in the scriptures. It's a time when Samuel's become old. Samuel is the spiritual leader of Israel. And Israel comes to him and says, listen, basically, Samuel, uh, you're getting old. You're not getting any younger. And your two sons, uh, we all know it's kind of a small town feel. We all know that Samuel, your two sons, don't follow in your ways, as the text says. It says that they pervert justice and they take bribes. And so, Samuel, we really don't want to be left to the mercy of your sons when you pass on. And so we thought this would be a good time for us to, to formally ask for a transition plan. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> uh, for a transition plan, we thought this might be a good time for us to ask for a king a king who will help us be like the other nations out there. Kings come with armies, they come with chariots, they come with horses, they come with troops, they come with guns, they come with all of the big things that help us feel safe as a nation because we're just little old Israel and we're on the outskirts of the kingdom. And we really, uh, Samuel, we'd like you to ask God for a king. And so this, uh, the text says the, this displeases Samuel because he feels personally rejected, like his leadership's being rejected. And God says, um, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. In other words, Samuel, don't take this personally, bro. They've been doing this to me for a long, long time. You remember Egypt when I brought them out of there into the land of milk and honey? Yeah, they forget about that quite often. And so I, I just want you to know that it's really me that they're rejecting, kind of a more a deeper spiritual reality. And I want you to... Uh, to tell them solemnly, here's what it says, now listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So I'm going to read the ways of the king here, 
and I want just one thing from you all is just take note of the number of times I say the word take, okay? These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain uh, and of your, uh, and, uh, sorry, of grain of your vineyards and give them to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. How many times did I say take? Did anyone keep track? Six? Okay. It's a lot, right? So what do the kings of the world do? They take, right? They take. Now let's go to Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Given, this is not a king of the world that we are celebrating on Christmas. This is not a king who uh, overcomes evil and oppression with more evil and oppression. He does not fight fire with fire. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. This is a king. And you notice that even in all of our passage, the word king doesn't even come up. Right? And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are the titles that God chooses for God's self. And it's almost as if the word king is so tainted by this long lineage, this long history of really this, this program that's failed, the whole concept of, of the monarchy and the kings and handing kingship over to other kings and the, really become, became this corrupted process such that God says, I want nothing to do with that category. In fact, when Jesus is offered the crown, they try to crown Jesus in the New Testament. What does he do? Stand back. If I'm going to be in charge here, I am going to define the parameters and the definition of what it means to lead. Isn't that great news that we don't have a king like the king of the world? I mean, hallelujah, this is the Christmas that we love. Wonderful counselor, mighty. And what does this king bring? It's a prince of peace. This child brings a, uh, peace with God, peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with ourselves. I mean, I love Christmas, uh, and I love this text because it's all gospel-centered. I mean, thank God that for God so loved the world that he didn't send an email, right? <laughs> he said, this is a problem that requires in-person sort of problem-solving, is that <laughs> the word became flesh and dwelt among us, decided to become, take on our our human likeness and our human form so that God became man so that man might become like God. This is the mystery of the incarnation that we, that we celebrate this morning. Peace with God. And thank God that this, we have a God who decided, I'm not going to you know, split the bill with you here. It's not going to be like, here's your 50%. I'll pay my 50%. Good luck with you with the rest of your sin. It's not, no, Jesus paid it all, right? Paid it all, all of it, it's gone. 
And it's free. It's a free gift for you today if you choose to, to accept that. That's the, the promise of Christmas. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I like the NRSV version of that. It says, his authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace. Meaning that this is a peace that's militant in its expansiveness. Meaning that it's a peace that's growing out like the fire that was in uh, earlier in the verses here in, um, in verse 4 and verse 5. Right, that this is a peace that's taking new territory, that's growing beyond its, uh, its boundaries. It says the land beyond the Jordan in verse 1, that land further away, even Assyria, is not safe from this kingship. And it's a, it's a kingship that's militant in its expansiveness, but not because of violence and not by violence, but by love and by meekness. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Meaning that it's landing and it's expanding. And the zeal of the Yahweh of hosts will do this. You remember the Lord, the capitalization, that means Yahweh. And hosts is just a fancy word for saying armies. So this Yahweh of armies, the zeal of this Yahweh of armies. I looked up the word zeal and I wrote it down. I wanted to share it with you just because I think that that last clause is the most important thing of this, is that the zeal of Yahweh is what is going to accomplish this. Not you or me, not our effort, not us trying to get together and make this big Christian army that goes out and takes over culture over culture. So no, that this is, this is based on, this is, this is funded by the zeal of Yahweh. Zeal means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. And what do you think the cause or the objective is of this, of this child who was born to us? What is his mission, the missio dei, the mission of God? I'm looking at it. You're the mission of God. You, even you, even me, I'm up here too, yeah. I'm included in this. We're the mission of God. God came for the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross. Do you know what makes the, what the joy was? Is, is us, and everybody out there too. This is the Christmas that I love. Um, so I'm grateful, grateful for this passage and ultimately grateful that it's the zeal, the enthusiasm of our God who we worship today, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's gonna carry out this mission with or without me. And I'm just happy to be on mission with him, aren't you? Amen, amen. Well, let me do one thing here. I'm gonna pray, and um, do we have a final song coming up? Perfect. Feel free to come on up. I'm going to pray as, uh, with uh, the breastplate of St. Patrick here. I thought this was very fitting. So feel free to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, may Christ be with us. May Christ be before us. Christ behind us. Christ in us. Christ beneath us. Christ above us. Christ on our right. Christ on our left. Christ when we lie down. Christ when we sit down. Christ when we arise. Christ in the heart of every man and woman who thinks of us. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of us. Christ in every eye that has seen us. And Christ in every ear that hears us. Amen. Amen.